Today we complete our study of the book of Jeremiah. We spent 12 measly weeks trying to cover 52 chapters, some of which are a lot longer than others. There are a few chapters that are less than 10 verses long. I was reading through uh, some of the verses, uh, chapters, I mean, we skipped over. And there was one that was like, well, that was real quick. That was an easy catch up. But uh, chapter 50 is not one of those chapters. There's 52 chapters in all. And here at the end of the story, um, keep in mind that as we get to Jeremiah chapter 50, even though the book is not entirely chronological, this is at the end of the story. Uh, this is after the city of Jerusalem has been defeated three separate times by Nebuchadnezzar, who at first was the prince and later the king of Babylon. And three separate waves of Jews have gone into exile and been moved for a while, for a couple of generations, into the Babylonian Empire. And as this scripture is given, um, we're along, uh, well, it, it is kind of, it seems like if you're reading for the Jews, the good guys have lost, and the bad guys have won. There's a little bit of a feeling of that. Even though the Jews deserved to be punished, they deserved everything that happened to them because they consistently ignored God's warnings, and God meant what he said, and everything God said to Jeremiah happened. We find them in this situation of, is there any hope now? And there is hope, because even though God may chastise us and punish us, we have the assurance God is not an abuser. God does not lash out in anger and do things to people that they do not deserve. God is not like an abusive husband who gets mad or gets drunk and harms his wife for no reason. When God punishes... It is a direct consequence of sin, and it has a corrective purpose. God does not lash out in abuse, but God disciplines his people. And the same God who disciplines, who acts in perfect justice, also seeks to restore, and better than that, to redeem his people. And we have here a glimmer of hope and a reversal of fortune that is being looked ahead to. Jeremiah will not live to see it, but many of the Jews in the future will live to see it. And here they are, given that word of assurance, even though it will take many years before God turns the tables, that Something that will also reference uh, Jeremiah's contemporary, a prophet named Habakkuk, who wrestled with the same question. We've mentioned him before. That, yes, the Babylonians are going to get their justice in time. You could argue that all the Jews had messed up, and boy, had they messed up. The Babylonians were not a good people. They were cruel. They were ruthless. They were barbaric, they conquered, and they showed no mercy to their enemies, including the Jews. And that is what we get to here 
that because God is just, because God administers justice to all the peoples of the world, that God is going to, in turn, punish the Babylonians for their sins. Nobody gets away with anything in God's house. And the whole world, in a sense, is his house. So we see here, as we kind of wrap up the story of Jeremiah, we're not done with Jeremiah, because next week Brother Ken is going to talk about the book of Lamentations, which Jeremiah also wrote. And we're going to take time to mourn what happened to the Jews, but also celebrate the same thought we're talking about today, that God's punishment doesn't have to be the end it depends how we respond to that punishment, because God always has a restorative purpose. That said, we're going to get here into what Jeremiah has to say in chapter 50. So that bit of background and this theme that, yes, God is just, but to me, I thought the, the best title I could come up with was God administers justice. Now, whether or not you just did something wrong depends on whether that's a good thing or not. But God administers justice. So we see here, as we go through, jumping into the middle of chapter 50 today, that the prophecy is given that Babylon will be completely destroyed. And we'll make some comparisons and even think about the fact is, if you want to go take vacation and go visit Babylon, there's nowhere for you to go. Babylon, once the mightiest city at the heart of the mightiest empire, the greatest empire the world had ever yet known, no longer exists. There are other cities in that general location, but there is no Babylon. So before we get all proud of ourselves, whatever our nationality, whatever our background, whoever we might root for, we need to remember, however great a human element may be, God can bring it to nothing. And that's what he did with the Babylonians. So he punishes their sins, as we began to talk about a little bit. We'll get more details. we get down to verse 14. And we will see that while he is punishing the Babylonians, God is giving Israel and the remaining Jews the remnant that survives. Remember, God always was going to have a remnant. In fact, at one point in the story, we said, God even told the Jews through Jeremiah, if you want to live, Go with the Babylonians and do what they say. If you continue to fight against me and you try and stay in the land, you're like the bad figs and you're going to spoil. But the good figs that go into exile, I'm going to bless them and I'm going to restore them. There's always a thought you're going to go away for 70 years and I'm going to bring you back. So we're looking ahead now to the end of that 70 years where the tables have turned. Instead of the Babylonians winning and the Jews losing, God's going to turn his mercy to Israel and the remnant of the Jews that deserved everything that happened to them. But God's going to say that's enough. It's time to come home. It's time for you to experience peace with your creator and forgiveness and a renewal. So that's going to happen, and we're going to talk about how God's redeeming Israel and its redemption. I think we can all relate to it as believers because we, too, have experienced redemption and forgiveness of sin as Christians. 
So we'll talk about that. A couple things to think about as we get into it. How does the way we treat the down and out reflect our own character? Do you kick somebody? Do you kick somebody when they're down? And if you do, what does that say about you? And I think we can relate that to the Babylonians that, yes, God did say, I'm going to let the Babylonians win. They're going to accomplish my purpose, and they're going to be the agent of my justice to Judah. But what was their attitude about it? Well, how did they carry themselves as God put them into that victorious position? And how does that relate to our story today? And then the second thing is how does Jeremiah's message here encourage us as we face setbacks? As we encounter resistance and even persecution, people attacking us for who we are or what we've done, as we have people treat us badly, how does this story give us encouragement for how God takes care of us as he administers justice? Everything will be set right. I would argue that out of all the things that we have as believers, at the top of the list, things we have right now, we don't have to wait for, not pie-in-the-sky things that we'll have someday, but things we have right now in the Christian life. As Paul often mentioned, this trio, we have faith, we have hope, and we have love. And it's hope that I really want to latch on to today. We have hope because God is just. Even if things seem wrong today, we have, and here comes our faith, that God is going to set things right by the end of the story. We've read the last chapter of the book, and we know that there may be pain now. There may be death now. But there will be a day where there are no more tears. There is only joy, and there is no more sin, but there is only the glory of God in his righteousness and dwelling in his presence. So we look ahead and hope. Everything will be set right. And this story is an example from our world history of how God, he may do things. And we might think, wait a minute, Lord, you just destroyed your own temple. You just basically, for the most part, wiped out your own people. It didn't totally wipe them out. You sent this exile into the foreign nation. But... You might, maybe we almost feel like like Peter. We said, no, Lord, you're not doing that. It doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? All right? Peter was bold enough to say it. And maybe sometimes you wonder, God, what in the world are you doing in my life? But if we think about his character and we trust his heart, it's okay if we can't trace his hand. It's okay if we don't understand the master plan, but our faith grows as we see God bringing things back into alignment in his patience and perfect timing. Everything will be set right. Let's see how that comes out of our story today. Let's back up a little bit. Just three verses here that are not in our study books, just to get a little bit of context. Could have gone all the way back to verse 1, but I know me, I'm already going to run out of time. So let's just go back to verse 8. This is enough to kind of get us into our story today. Again, remember, Jeremiah has, is giving us a vision of the future. This is not Jeremiah's present. 
Jeremiah never lives to experience this, but looking ahead to the end of the 70 years, and here's what he says. Escape from Babylon, depart from the Chaldeans' land, be like the rams that lead the flock. For I will soon stir up and bring against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. They will line up in battle formation against her. From there, she will be captured. The arrows will be like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. The Chaldeans will become plunder. All Babylon's plunderers will be fully satisfied. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, if the Chaldeans, I don't know how much we talked about the Chaldeans. We really have been focused on Israel the last couple of weeks. But saying Babylon in the Chaldeans' land is kind of like saying I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Babylon was the city, and it was so powerful that generally the whole empire was named. But the Chaldeans have been a people for a very long time. I think even Abraham came from the land of the Chaldeans, or the Chaldeans, okay? So in a sense, I mean, the Babylonians, in a way, it's kind of like the Jews' cousins. Like, if you go way, way back, at least, Abraham, I'm not sure he's descended from them, but he dwelt in their land for a while. They were at least neighbors for a little bit. All right? That was a long, long time ago. But this is that land. It's way over in the far east. It's in the Fertile Crescent. Um... You may even have a nice... Our map uh, in our study books is focused on Judah, so it doesn't really help us here. But uh, you might recall there were two famous rivers. They're still around today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And it's, a fair, it's called the Fertile Crescent. And the Assyrians were on the north side of that, and the Babylonians were on the south side of that. But nobody traveled east to west through the desert. So if you wanted to get to Judah... You had to go from Babylon, kind of north up to where the Assyrians were, and then you had to come around the bend and come down along the Mediterranean coast down to where Israel was and pass through uh, the, the land of the Phoenicians and other places like that. But that land of the Chaldeans, all right, uh, modern-day Iraq, that's the, the area we're talking about. And if you go further to the east and north, you find the land of the Medes, and you find to the a little further to the east, I think, the land of the Persians. And so what happens at this time in world history is the Babylonians have teamed up with the Medes and the Persians, and they have pushed west, and they supersede the Assyrians as the world power. Remember, it was the Assyrians who sent the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. But now it's the Babylonians' turn. They are now the world power, and their empire gets even bigger than the Assyrians for a couple of reasons. And they end up defeating the leftovers of the Assyrians and the Egyptians in the Battle of Karshemish in 605 BC. That's about the time of the first uh, captivity of Jerusalem. The first time Jerusalem was defeated was part of all that. The Babylonians established world supremacy. They are the big power. All right. So now it's about 30 years later when, when Jeremiah has is, is writing. And, and not only has Jerusalem been defeated two additional times, but the walls have been torn down and flattened, and the temple has been burned and destroyed, and the city's in ruins. And now there's very few people, as we read about, 
uh, last week, we talked about in chapter 42 how there was the remnant. They were talking about going to Egypt, and God said, don't go to Egypt, but they went anyway. And so they went to Egypt, and that branch of the Jews is not going to prosper. They're going to basically die out. So we have kind of a vacant land. Judah's been kind of wiped out. There's just a few refugees there. It's just the poorest of the land are left. But looking ahead 70 more years, Jeremiah sees the day that Babylon, current world champs, are going to be defeated. They are friends of Jeremiah's day. The Medes and the Persians will one day turn on them. And just like the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians, the Persians and the Medes will defeat the Babylonians. And so, in other words, we see their day is coming. That's what we're getting into as we get into chapter 50. So now let's get into our focus verses, where we begin in verse 11. Because you rejoice. Now, Jeremiah here is talking to the Babylonians. He's just kind of given them word that the day is coming when they're going to face defeat instead of victory. So now he turns his attention right at the Babylonians. He talks to them. Because you rejoice, because you celebrate, you who plundered my inheritance, because you frolic like a young cow, treading grain and neigh like stallions, your mother will be utterly humiliated. She who bore you will be put to shame. Look, she will lag behind all the nations, an arid wilderness, a desert. Because of the Lord's wrath, she will not be inhabited. She will become a desolation. Every bit of her, everyone who passes through Babylon will be appalled and scoff because of all her wounds. Well, what a turn of events. And Although I said Jeremiah talking, it's really the Lord talking to the city of Babylon here. Letting you know, I see you down the line, and today you rejoice. Today you celebrate. But here's where God's justice kicks in. You see the next part of verse 11? You who plundered my inheritance. And God is saying, you're rejoicing right now, but maybe that's not the attitude you should have when you just wiped out my people. Okay? Um, you know, sometimes siblings will fight, but let somebody from outside the family pick on one of your siblings, and suddenly they're the bad guy. Right? And if they have an older brother or sister, they would just mess with you, mess with you. But then if anybody outside the family tried to pick on you, they were in their face. And here God is saying, I allowed you to bring judgment to my people. And you're throwing a party. And you're celebrating. And you're happy about it. Whereas God's saying, I'm heartbroken that I had to do this to my people. And there's a misconnect here. You're not supposed to be whooping it up because you just leveled my temple. I let you do that because of my people's sin. But I don't want you to be happy about it. So God's justice now, having taken care of the problems in Judah, he begins to turn his attention to Babylon. And Babylon, even though it was God's purpose to use them as a tool, their attitude about what they've done to Jerusalem is where God begins to say, I'm going to have to now deal with you. 
your attitude is not appropriate. That's not the way you ought to be reacting. Where is your compassion, Babylon? Where is your consideration? Where is your justice? So, he compares them to a frolicking horse. You think about a horse in the open country, wild, carefree, strong. That was Babylon. But there was going to be a time where Babylon was going to experience shame and disgrace instead of that. And notice how, how completely it was going to go. Like, not only is she going to be humiliated instead of being, you know, on top of the world, she's going to lie behind all nations. You're going to go from first to last. Now, I liked it way back in the day when the Braves went from, like, worst to first. You know, all of a sudden they were good. And they were going to the playoffs every year. But, you know, it's like, well, I guess Babylon, you're kind of like Mets fans, I guess. You're supposed to be good. You used to be good. I'm not sure that's true. Well, I guess it is true about the Mets. They had some good teams once upon a time. But they're, they're going to the bottom of the, of, the, of the standings here. And it's not just a sports competition. It's not something as trivial as that. They... Not only are they going to be the least of all nations, they're going to be left as a wilderness. There is no Babylon, again, to go visit today. In fact, the comparison to me made here, as, as we'll mention in a minute, is that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Once a bustling city that when God dealt with an injustice and brought the judgment and punishment they so much deserved for their sexual depravity and, and other poor attitudes... There's nothing, there was nothing left of them. And that's the scary thing, that here's the strongest empire of the world, and in less than a century, God's going to reduce it to nothing. That really sobers us up and realizes it's not so much about what we do or how smart or powerful we think we are as, a, as people or as a nation. It's about whether God shows his favor to us and allows us to remain on the world stage or not. And that's what we see here. You can go from the most powerful empire in the world to nothing in 70 short years. And we know that's 70 because other things that Jeremiah said. He said that's how long the Jewish exile is going to be. He said in advance, you're going to be gone for 70 years. You're going to come back. More about that soon. But notice in verse 13, going to become a desolation. There won't be anything left. Many historians counted the Hanging Gardens of Babylon as one of the seven wonders of the world. But you can't visit those today. If they ever existed, some people think they're a myth. Probably because Babylon got eradicated. You can, if, if, from pictures that I've seen of uh, all you will see, you can see towers, you can see walls. It's all sand, covered in sand now. Nobody is interested in even going there. It's about 50 miles south of Baghdad. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's just nothing. If you like seeing old towers covered in sand, you can. Yeah. See the site of Babylon, but nobody lives there. It is, as the scripture said, completely desolate. It's not like, you know, sometimes, like there was a big fire in Chicago, right, that rebuilt it. I'm sure that 
uh, after the recent wildfires in Maui, that Hawaii will be restored and it will again be a beautiful place, but it will take a lot of work and recovery. But here's a case where a, a disaster happens to a city and anyone who walks by will simply scoff. They'll be appalled at the result. This used to be a powerful kingdom. Look at this. Looks like a pile of sand. That is what God is going to bring to Babylon. And here's the verses later on at the end of the chapter. I thought it would be good to highlight that, the comparison that God himself makes. So at the end of the chapter, if you look at verse 39 and 40, Therefore wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell in her. And by the way, he's not talking about the Babylon Zoo here. He's talking about the entire land will simply be a zoo. There will only be animals there. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. Well, 2,700 years later, still not inhabited. God seems to be correct on that. No one would have guessed it at the time. But it turned out to be true. As when, verse 40, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and all their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. It always amazes me that people don't pay attention to what God says. When God can tell you, oh, this bustling city is going to be uninhabited for 3,000 years, at least. It happens. And yet, some people don't pay attention when God says things because they don't know. They live in ignorance that God, when he says it, it happens. You can count on it. You better pay attention, huh? Whoever you think you are, even the bustling city of Babylon. So we see a reversal of outcomes. That's what we see in verse 11 to 13. They went from first to worst. That's not the way you want it to go if you're a fan of a city or a team. And we're going to get more into why, but God says, I'm going to totally make you desolate. You're going to go from the most influential to the least influential place on the planet, totally reversing your outcomes. But we've already seen a hint as to why, because you were rejoicing at defeating my prized city and destroying my lovely temple, even though it had to be done. You could have at least been sad about it. You could have been reverent about it, but instead you frolic through like a wild horse, and God says, I have to hold you accountable for that. So as we get into verse 14, that's what we're going to see, that the reason for this reversal is God is take, finally going to take a turn at dealing with Babylon's sins. So verse 14, and this is very similar to what we read back in verses 8 through 10. Line up in battle formation around Babylon, all you archers. Shoot at her. Do not spare an arrow, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a war cry against her on every side. She has thrown up her hands and surrendered. Her defense towers have fallen. Her walls are demolished. Since this is the Lord's vengeance, take your vengeance on her as she has done. Do the same to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon as well as him who wields the sickle at harvest time. Because of the oppressor's sword, each will turn to his own people. Each will flee to his own land. 
turn the page. Israel is a stray lamb chased by lions. The first who devoured him was the king of Assyria. The last who crushed his bones was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. I am about to punish the king of Babylon and his land, just as I punished the king of Assyria. It's funny how we don't think about things. Babylon's not thinking, hmm, Assyria used to be the most powerful nation in the world, and I just kind of took him out. Well, who's going to take you out? Like, isn't your turn next, Babylon? You're not in a secret place any more than the king of Assyria was. You're on top of the, you're king of the hill right now. But there's lots of people who love to knock you off the hill. And so Babylon was not a place of security. He was in a place of power, but not a place of security. And again, all of this is happening because of what? The Lord's vengeance, other translations say punishment. God is punishing them for what they have done to his promised land and his people. And again, it's partly about their attitude about it. They, they enjoyed, they reveled in the victory. They weren't reverent about what they were doing. And that makes their time on the world stage impressive, but short-lived. So, um, the archers on all sides... You would send in the archers first, and you would soften up the defenses, and you would get everybody off the towers and off the, the defensive elements of the city, and that would clear the way for you to bring in the siege engines, and you would, you would start demolishing the walls, and that's the progression we see here in verse 15. And again, on all sides, Babylon um, once thought unassailable. They would actually be evaded from the inside out. Um, the thought is that the Persians and Medes snuck in the city through the water supply, and then they let their people in and were able to, you know, get to the, the towers. But that's a story for another day. Here we see them throwing up their hands and surrender. Now, the Babylonians were known as a cruel, merciless people. The Assyrians were too. <coughs> so when they throw up their hands and surrender... You know, what, what kind of treatment do you think you're really going to get? You think people are going to go easy on them, right? They're the notorious bad guy here. Um, they, they were so successful that everyone feared them, but everyone kind of hated them as well. And so when it was their time, they are going to just be beset on all sides, as you see here. And in verse 16, you kind of see the agricultural uh you know, when, when you get besieged on all sides, you can't plant your crops, you can't reap your crops, everything gets disrupted, your entire economy. And what I think is interesting in verse 16, it says, each will turn to his own people, each will flee to his own land. The, an empire means you defeat people and you bring them on and make them part of you. And there were all kinds of nationalities living in Babylon. Babylon was a very much international city. Because Babylon would defeat, you know, maybe the the, uh, the Moabites and the Edomites and, and the Syrians and, and the Jews, and they would bring them in just like they brought the Jews into exile into their country. So Babylon and all these cities in the Babylonian Empire were filled with foreigners 
who were now Babylonians. The Romans would come along and do the same thing. They would say, okay, well, we just defeated Gaul. Well, Gaul's going to be one of our provinces now. We defeat Syria, and we got the Syrian province, and that's where we see in the New Testament the Jews operating as a province of Rome. So the really great empires learn to assimilate people and say, okay, you used to be these losers, but now you're part of the great Babylonian empire. Congratulations, you're us. But as it comes to this day, people are getting off the sinking ship. And as Babylon begins to fall, they're all fleeing back to their own native land where they used to be generations ago because, oh, we're losing now. We've got to run for our lives, and we need to go back to be the people we used to be many years ago. So that no longer is there a Babylonian empire. They go back to being Syrians or Jews or whatever they used to be before um, because the time of Babylon has come. Notice God's attitude towards Israel in verse 17, because this is kind of the heart of it. He's saying, Israel's a stray lamb. What is it the scriptures say? All we like sheep have gone astray. God sees our sin, but he sees us as a sheep that a lot of times we just don't know better. And if, you know, Judah, if he had just been smarter, if he had just been more moral, you could have avoided this whole moral collapse. But the fact is that in our humanity, we're not able to live a holy life. It was actually inevitable that eventually the Jewish people would go astray because they weren't capable of being a holy people. We aren't capable of living a righteous life. And we need a redeemer. And that's the next part of the story. But even here in verse 17, we start to see God's heart for sinful man. And he sees Israel as a stray lamb. Yes, it should have been smarter. Yes, it shouldn't have disobeyed me. But everything that happened to it, God sees us for the dust that we are. And that, just because we sin against the Lord doesn't mean we can't come to him and admit who we are and that we need his help. And so God viewing Israel now as the lamb that's been chased by the lions of Assyria and Babylon. And he saw how Assyria devoured the northern kingdom. And he sees how Nebuchadnezzar crushed the bones of the Jews through those three times that he sacked Jerusalem. And now God is feeling some sympathy. You read that in the story? God has a is tender hearted. He did what he had to do. He did the just punishment. But again, God is not delighting in the misfortune of man. God does not punish sin and celebrate the punishment. God punishes sin with reluctance because by his just nature he must. But God doesn't delight in our misfortune. That is how God can be loving and just at the same time. You may think of a time that you had to discipline a child. And you didn't want to do it, but you knew you had to do it because they needed to grow up and they needed to know not to do that thing. Now, if they touched the stove, it didn't have to do much. You just hug them while they cry because they realized that was a really bad decision. I remember a time that my grandmother set out a hot iron and she said, now, don't touch that. Well, for some reason, I thought it would be a great idea at that moment to do exactly that and touch the iron. And boy, did my finger. I knew right away that was a really stupid idea. I should have listened to that. 
But the fact is that God makes sure that sin gets punished. But he doesn't do it as some kind of mean, cosmic being. He does it with a compassionate heart. And he sees how we suffer. Remember how God saw the groaning of the Israelites when they were in Egypt? And when they called out to him, he sent Moses to take them out of Egypt and to send them on their way to the promised land. God is a just God who punishes sin, and God is a compassionate God who longs to bring us into the fold and to wrap his arms around us and to forgive us and to redeem us. But the Babylonian conquerors didn't have that kind of attitude, and God knew it was going to be that way. But here, that's why he's bringing them into reckoning. You treated my people like trash. You treated my people badly. And nothing gets God more riled up than when we treat human beings made in his image like they're trash instead of a life made of the glory of God. we got to treat each other better, folks. Because when you don't, God is not going to be happy with you. And God's justice is going to have to turn his eye towards you. And I don't want my life to fall apart because I treat people badly. But if it does, I totally deserve it. And that's what happened to the Babylonians. God said, I saw how you treated my people when I put them in your hand. You gnawed on their bone. You gnawed them down to the bone. You totally crushed them, Babylon. And it's time for you to answer for that. So that's what we're seeing here in verse 17. And so now, now we understand why God has to punish the Babylonians. He cannot let them just keep skipping along on their merry way. He has to hold them accountable for how they have treated his people. Even though Israel and Judah deserved their punishment, Babylon now deserves punishment because how they have mishandled the situation. How they have mistreated their fellow man. So, I want you to see this from Isaiah. This is not from Jeremiah. Isaiah, when he was a prophet, the northern kingdom of Israel was still around. So this is over a hundred years, more like a hundred and fifty years, really, close to that before Jerusalem finally falls. And notice what Isaiah has to say about these Chaldeans and Babylon, the daughter of the Chaldeans. So Isaiah chapter 47, sit in silence, go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. This is looking ahead to why God has to judge the Babylonians. And all the way back in the day of Isaiah, God knew how this was going to go down. You were the mistress of kingdoms. You're going to have your turn on the world stage. Just have every Remember, when Isaiah wrote, the Assyrians were the numero uno. They were the prime world power. God knew the Babylonians would have their turn being the most powerful nation. And he knew that he was going to get angry with his people, the southern kingdom in this case, 
profane his heritage, allow his temple to be destroyed, send his people into exile. Again, this is over a hundred years before it ever happens. Give them into the Babylonians' hand, and the Babylonians would treat them with no mercy, with an excessive yoke, excessive burden. And just like Pharaoh mistreating the people in Egypt, that Babylon would mistreat the people left in the land, and that God would have to judge them for that. We cannot get away with our sins because of somebody else's sins. We all have our turn that we have to relate to God. We cannot say, well, I don't do what so-and-so does. I'm going to go to heaven because I never murdered anybody. I'm, I, I haven't committed adultery. I'm not a homosexual. I don't abuse drugs or alcohol. You can't list off bad things that somebody else did and have a right standing with God. We each appear before God and we answer for our own sins. And if we don't have an advocate, there's only one place we can go. We can't go to heaven where God is and he's holy. The only place to go is only one alternative and that's hell. And hell is a miserable place because God is not there. None of God's benefit are in hell. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no happiness. And we choose to go there but because we refuse to do business with God. And the Babylonians as a nation, because they refuse to follow God, and they refuse to be people marked by mercy and compassion, and they chose to be a people who lived out with cruelty towards one another, would love to say I lived in a nation full of mercy and compassion, but I'm not sure that's the case today. I'm not sure we treat each other any better than the Babylonians treated the Jews. And the Babylonians deserved. They got their justice, and they were wiped off the world map. Now, if you go back, the book of Habakkuk is a great study along with what we've been doing. You can go back and look at some things Habakkuk, uh, he, he thought about um, the fact that, wow, God, how are you going to send these cruel people to be your agents of justice? And God had to explain to him that, well, they're gonna, I'm going to deal with them after I use them as a tool to deal with my people. Don't worry. The Babylonians aren't going to get away with being a cruel and merciless people. I will judge them, as we see here. And what I find in this story, this reversal of fortunes, that Babylon had, you know what I see? I see God employing the golden rule in the Old Testament. Now, what's the golden rule? Do others as you would have them do to you. When Babylon was a powerful nation, they mistreated other nations. And in the end, God mistreated them. We have to, even if we are in a position of strength, we have to treat others right, or God will hold us accountable for that. That is why the Babylonians were wiped off the map. And it's a sobering lesson for all of humanity. So there's a reckoning for the offenses of Babylon. That is why when their turn came, God was so harsh against them. They deserved what they got and more. They were a cruel, merciless people. And God allowed them to rise, and then he wiped them off the map. 
They wasted their opportunity to be a world power, and they will be off the world stage. So the reversal of outcomes from first to worst, a reckoning of their offenses, and they'll be left desolate. But now it's time to turn our attention to the Jews, the Jews who recently have lost and lost and lost, and their city has been ransacked and destroyed. Is there any hope for them? Is the story over? Do we just close the book of Jeremiah and the Bible is just a sad story? All about defeat and exile? I think we know it's not the end of the story, right? But we have to understand what happened. This is what happened when a nation tries to live for God out of their own humanity. And it's impossible. We can never please him. But what happens when we realize we failed miserably? Is there still hope? And there is. We move on to verse 19. I will return Israel to his grazing land, and he will feed on Carmel and Bashan. He will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and of Gilead. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration, one will search for Israel's iniquity. There will be none. And for Judah's sins, but they will not be found. For I will forgive those I leave as a remnant. So we see that God, who is bestowing justice on the Babylonians, just like he already bestowed justice to the people of Judah, is now opening a path for mercy. The same God who bestows justice also bestows mercy. And the best thing of all is we can choose which one we receive. Do you want the justice or the mercy? I know which one I'm going to pick. And he is saying, I'm going to restore my people, the ones I just sent into exile. But this was my plan all along. God's been perfectly clear. If you persistently, stubbornly disobey me, I'm going to wipe you off the map for a while. But then I will bring you back to the promised land. Remember, it was God who promised to give them the promised land. He's not totally revoking that promise. He's just kind of hitting the reset button on his relationship with the Jews. I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to send you away for a couple of generations. And when your heart is right, we'll talk about that in a minute, I'm going to bring you back. And we're going to, we're going to do this a little differently next time around. Because you can't do this on your own. You need a little more help from me to be my holy people. But notice what they're returning to. These places. These are places that we read about in the Old Testament, right? Carmel. You know, Mount Carmel was where the prophet Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Carmel's over there by the coast and not on the mountain itself, but not too far from the mountain. The area of Carmel is some nice... Grazing land, grassy areas that you can take your, your herd out to. Bashan, that was a place they marched through with Moses. They beat Og of Bashan in the land of the Amorites coming up the trail as they, as they moved towards or the Ammonites, one of those ites down there, that they took over his land. One of the first battles they won as they marched towards the promised land. That's on the east side of Jordan. Carmel's on the west. Ephraim is on the west. That, of course, that's the area of Samaria. 
this is really encouraging for God to say there's going to be people in Samaria and, and Ephraim again because that was the epicenter of the northern kingdom that God took away first with the Assyrians. And then Gilead, you might remember, as the scripture says, there's a bomb in Gilead. That's another area to the east of the Jordan River. These are areas that were famous for their agriculture in Israel. And God is saying, you know what, right now those are desolate areas. And right now, Babylon is this king of commerce of the world. In 70 years' time, it's going to be people grazing in those lovely lands of the promised land again, and Babylon will be no more. Talk about a reversal of fortunes. Not only are the Babylonians going down, but kind of by stock in Israel, they're coming back. Because God said they're coming back, and nothing can stop it from happening. But what a wonderful picture. He says, I did what I had to, but I will restore you. Whatever it looks like right now, I'm going to rebuild, and I really will build back better. Politicians, the results aren't always so great, but when God builds something back, he really can restore it to its former glory and beyond, and that's what he's going to do. This is the Lord's declaration in verse 20. Isn't that Jeremiah's catchphrase? He's reminding you, I didn't come up with this. God is telling you this. God gave me this message. This is the Lord's declaration. But the most wonderful part about it is not just the feeding ground. It's the forgiveness. I will search for Israel's iniquity, and there will be none for Judah's sin, and they will not be found. One thing to notice here is, remember, as we've studied the history of Israel, it was always Israel to the north, Judah to the south, Samaria and Israel, Jerusalem and Judah. But after the restoration, and remember, God split the kingdom because of Solomon's sin. And the, the, the tribe of Judah uh, continued to follow David, but the other ones rebelled. And they've been separate, and sometimes they fought each other throughout the years. When they come back, they're being brought back together. Not only are both of their sins being forgiven at this point, but it's only going to be one nation. There's going to be one nation of Israel, just like there is on the map today. That's a little thought that you see kind of woven into verse 20. But the main thing is, I will forgive their sins. And this is a promise God has made, and this is the key to it. We can't relate to God unless we can find forgiveness for our sins, because we goof up sometimes. We make mistakes. Our hearts lead us astray, and we fall into sin. We have to be sorry about that sin and find the Lord's forgiveness. So look here at what... A couple things that Ezekiel had to say. I think I have two different references for Ezekiel, so I need to hurry. Let me just point out some key verses here. Ezekiel, sort of Jeremiah's contemporary, a little bit later actually than Jeremiah, because Ezekiel was actually in the exile, and Jeremiah stayed behind in the promised land. So Ezekiel, notice the the, the phrasing here. Remember, we're talking about bringing them back to the promised land, bringing them back to the land of, of grazing land where they can feed and be satisfied. And there's definitely some hints of Psalm 23 in there, too, aren't there? But he said in the book of Ezekiel, I'll bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them into their own land. And I will feed them, verse 14, with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel. That would include Mount Carmel. 
I will be the shepherd of my sheep. That's the promise. I can restore you, Israel. Just trust me. I'll bring you back. And also in uh, Ezekiel 37, very similar passage here. Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around. I'll make them one nation in the land. Again, no more Israel and Judah. It's just going to be the nation of Israel with the capital of Jerusalem now. And one king shall be over them all, no longer two kings, kingdoms. So there we have it. God's purpose of restoration. God justly punishes sin, but he delights in restoring us after. So a restoration of the outcasts, the ones in exile, God says, don't worry. Babylon seems to be winning, but I'm going to punish their sins, and I'm going to restore you and forgive your sins. You're going to continue to be my people. And that takes us to verse 33 and 34. Where here we see, this is what the Lord of armies says. Again, the Lord of armies, conquering even the mighty Babylonians and restoring even the most meager of people. Israelites and Judeans alike have been oppressed. All their captors hold them fast. They refuse to release them. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of armies is his name. He will fervently champion their cause so that he might bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to those who live in Babylon. Maybe some of the Jews wondered while they were in the exile, is God really strong enough to take us out of this country that's conquered us and make us a nation again? Got good news for you, folks. He is. And I would challenge you, no matter what you're thinking about, no matter what you're facing this week, if your question is, is God strong enough? Don't even tell me the details. I got an answer for you. Yes, he is. Period. No matter what it is, no matter what you're facing, no matter who's against you, is God strong enough? Yes. Do I need to hear the rest of the question? No. My Redeemer is strong. He is able. And even though it seemed like a hopeless situation and Babylon had won and Judah had lost, God says, just give me a little time. I, I can fix this for you. No problem. Sometimes we're like the kid and we broke the toy and we're just crying. Life seemed hopeless. My toy is broken. But you know what? Toys can be fixed. Lives can be put back together. We can be restored because our Redeemer is strong. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That even though Jeremiah couldn't see it, he knew that God was going to do it. Just like he said. A couple of verses to share with you while we wrap it up. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Sometimes we need to get our eyes off Babylon and put them on the Lord. And realize our confidence outweighs our challenges. That's Psalm 27, verse 1. David had some struggles, but David came out on top because he trusted in the Lord. Romans 8, uh, 31. We're obviously not reading all the way through 39 here. But what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Babylon? Don't think so. 
Hot weather, eh, it'll cool down. Health concerns, great physician, here's my prayers. Whatever it is that we are facing, God is greater. And we can have faith and hope and love, whatever we are facing, because our Redeemer is strong. And if we'll just come to him humbly and say, God, I need your help, he's got it. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and of your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God does judge sin. And he does get angry when we mistreat others. But he also merciful. We have to understand both sides of God. God doesn't just wink at sin. You can't just go on frolicking and think you're going to heaven. But oh, when you realize you're a sinner and you turn to him, he opens the floodgates of mercy and Habakkuk realizes that's what we need. That's what we need. You can trust God to be just. But did you know he's merciful? We need him that. We need that from him above all. There's one God, one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. God is our redeemer. And thank goodness that he made mercy available, that we don't have to answer for every wrong thing we did. But we can find a redeemer. He's a redeemer for the oppressed, just like these people were being oppressed by the Babylonians. And sometimes we might feel oppressed by this world that works against us so much. But don't you worry. There is a redeemer. What did Job say? My redeemer lives. And we can trust in him, whatever we have to face in this world that might seem hostile at times. There's a redeemer for the oppressed. Yes, there's a reckoning, but there's a restoration. Which side of that are we on? Let's try and bring people over to the right side of that. Help them understand. Stop fighting against God. He wants you in his arms. All right, so there's all the summary points. Some of you have that on your handout. Next week we'll be in Lamentations chapter 3, as we talked about. And then we're in Mark, which I say because... Peter was a pretty excitable guy, and he was the source of the book of Mark, and that's going to be a very, very quick-moving gospel that I think we'll enjoy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your redemption and your forgiveness. We thank you that you hold the world in your justice. Everyone has to answer for what they've done. Nobody gets away with anything. You see all, and you hold all accountable. But then we think about that. When we realize that we don't measure up, we are so thankful for your mercy and your forgiveness and your redemption. Because we couldn't have a relationship with you based on the quality of our works. But we can have a relationship with you on the basis of your love and your gracious forgiveness if we but humble ourselves and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. So thank you for what we have. Thank you that you are our Redeemer. Thank you that you're so strong.
nothing we face, not even the most daunting of decisions or concerns that you can't handle. So we just give you praise this morning. Be glorified in the service as we worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>